Hey, Oasis Church Chicago, Pastor JP here. Hey, we're so glad that you're joining with us on our podcast today. I pray today that this message stirs your faith, that it builds you up, that it draws you closer to the Father's heart, and ultimately that you just feel the embrace of heaven. We would love to stay connected with you and you to stay connected with us. So please feel free to check us out on our website, oasischurchchicago.com, or download our app, Oasis Church Chicago. Also, you can be sure to join with us on our live stream on our YouTube page every Wednesday night and Sunday morning. Now here's today's message. That's the longest introduction I've had for quite a while. <laughs> I said, this house is just full of young people, and I'm actually, <clears throat> I mean, I may look older, but I'm actually only about 23 <laughs> underneath it. Uh, and uh, Elaine and I, we love to spend time with young people. People our own age are the most boring. Well, they can be. <laughs> Uh, and I think the more time you spend with younger people, the, it helps you retain something of your vitality, even in the morning. So, and uh, we've been so blessed by uh, the way that this church has welcomed us and Eric and Hannah, who have so graciously uh, taken us into their house. Uh, what an amazing couple they are. Um, thank you. Uh, and JP and Rachel. And anyway... Uh, I don't want to go on too long because uh, um, might get a spirit of flattery upon me. And <laughs> you might think that I'm just saying nice things about them to increase the offering. So anyway, that's not that. I want to encourage you, seeing as this house is full of young people today, and I started my first church with a very similar group to this. The other two elders were 22, and I was 28. Uh, and, you know, you look at the news these days, and it's uh, not very encouraging, and society uh, has put this kind of uh, fear upon younger people. You know, something's going to get you. You know, if it's not uh, climate change, it's Russia, or it's COVID, or it's something else. When I was uh, a student at the University of Toronto, an undergraduate a couple years ago, um, <laughs> I had the privilege of attending uh, the last church that Dr. A.W. Tozer pastored before he died. And Dr. Tozer made this statement, a frightened world needs a fearless church. A frightened world needs a fearless church. And I want to assure you this morning, if you read the last book of the Bible, you'll discover that it, in it, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And he's speaking to a suffering church. And what he means by that is, I am the Lord of the beginning. I am of history. I am the Lord of the end of history. And I am the Lord of everything in between. So the events of history are not being controlled by some evil dictator or uh, climate change forces or other things that are going on out there. We know we live in a fallen world. We know there's difficulties in the world. But Jesus Christ is on the throne today, and this world is not going to end or implode until the moment that he sovereignly decides he's going to return, and that is going to be the most amazing moment in all of creation. So I just want to give that as an encouragement to you this morning. It's not part of my message, and if anyone is, you know, got the clock counting and the minutes that I'm allowed to speak this morning, that didn't count. Okay. 
Some churches, they do have clocks. Well, there is a clock at the back, I noticed. But... <laughs> I never pay attention anyway. Okay. Uh, I want to speak to you this morning uh, from 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, let me uh, read just a few short verses. Kind of hard to manage this. You know, I'm not, my wife is much better at multitasking than me. So to hold a microphone and read something at the same time is a little bit of a challenge. All right. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now, from 1994 to 1996, Elaine and I, along with many others, lived through an extraordinary and unusual visitation of God. We prayed for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people, um, coming to the city of Toronto to a church there from all over the world. They came by the plane loads. Uh, we drove hundreds of miles uh, up and down the highway, making the two-hour trip, often coming home in the early hours of the morning. Our own church was radically affected. Instead of hacking away at getting people to attend service, we couldn't get them to leave. And if they did leave, they were being carried out. Uh, I'll explain that later. <laughs> but a couple of years later, I found myself in utter despair because people we had poured our lives into, most of them for years, people who had been affected some radically by the moving of the Spirit, one by one, left our church to go nowhere. And one day I found myself walking down our driveway, taking the garbage out. I just seemed to have lost hope. But in that moment, I heard God speak to me in a low whisper. And the voice said this, just keep put, putting one foot ahead of another. And so I did. And somehow that day I made it to the end of the driveway put the garbage out, and bit by bit, things got better. Now, by the word of the Lord through Elijah, there had been no rain in the land for three years. And then the word of the Lord came again. The drought was about to end. Now, through Elijah, God was controlling the weather and the economy of the nation because it was an agricultural economy. 
Elijah was controlling the entire economy of the nation in judgment on the wicked rule of Ahab and Jezebel. And then the moment came where Elijah, who had been in hiding, was commanded to show himself to Ahab. That, this all takes place before the verses that I read. And in that meeting between Elijah and Ahab, he sets up this confrontation on Mount Carmel between himself and all the hundreds of prophets of Baal and Asherah. And the story unfolds as one of the most vivid and powerful accounts in the Bible of the confrontation of good and evil. And in it, God miraculously moved, as anyone that's read their Bible knows, to destroy the power of the enemy and hundreds of his agents. And following that, Elijah pronounced the end of the drought and the coming of the rain, and Ahab had to rush back into the city to avoid being caught in the deluge. And it looked like, at that moment, anyone looking on and observing what had happened It looked like the battle was over, but it wasn't. Jezebel operated in an extraordinary measure of demonic power. And Elijah's victory didn't so much terrify her as it infuriated her. And so she ordered Elijah's execution. Now, Elijah had lived by the word of the Lord, his whole ministry, and had had any number of extraordinary things happen to him, but his greatest ace was that he could hear the voice of God. So at that moment, you would have thought the word of the Lord would have come again to the prophet, but it didn't. And it says in the verses we read that he was consumed by fear and ran for his life. Well, if faith is the, tri- is the key to triumph over fear, then fear is the greatest obstacle to our being able to hear from God. And uh, Elijah, this extraordinary man of faith, who had more faith than him, at least the previous day when he faced down all the prophets of Baal, because think about it, uh, if neither God had answered by fire, Elijah would have been the meat cut up on the altar, not the prophets of Baal, because he was outnumbered. But Elijah had this extraordinary faith, but he fell into fear, and even Elijah wasn't able to hear God. And the account continues, he fled to Beersheba. Now, Beersheba, as it so happens, is 120 miles approximately from Mount Carmel, which is as far away as he could get from Jezebel without leaving the boundaries of the nation. And there, in a very depressed state, he prayed that God would take his life. It's enough, Lord. That's what he said. Anyone here say, it's enough? Well, you're in good company. Elijah basically was saying, I've sacrificed enough for you, God. I reach my limit. This is it. Well, thank God Jesus didn't take that attitude as he faced Calvary. Because there's never an end, there's never a reason to end our serving of God. I'll say that again. It was a very seeker-sensitive moment. (laughs) There's never a reason to end our serving of God. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are or what kind of bad mood or grump or pout you're in. 
There is never a reason to end or limit your serving of God. Elijah was depressed. In my pastoral experience and from counselors I've consulted, the root of most depression is anger. If you meet someone who's depressed, I ask them, what are you angry about? And so Elijah had painted himself here as a sacrificial servant whom God has failed. He was angry at God because God had refused to fulfill his expectations. His expectations obviously were that following this whole uh, confrontation, and it seemed that everything of the previous number of years was leading up to that moment on Mount Carmel, but God had not fulfilled his expectations, and so he'd had enough. Well, God is gracious. He, and instead of kind of smoking Elijah, he sent an angel to feed him. How many times, I, I asked you the question this morning, how many times has God sent somebody to you? Maybe an angel in disguise. Uh, but how many times has God sent somebody to you just in the moment when you are ready to give up? God has a way of meeting us at what one theologian calls the screaming point. <laughs> Anybody ever been there? <laughs> Why is it that God does that? They always say God has a problem. He thinks he's God. You know, <laughs> I know it's deep, but you'll get it in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it that God waits till five minutes to midnight before he meets us? Well, so Elijah has lost control. His plan hasn't worked, but God has no such problem. Just when you think it's all over, like me walking down the driveway, taking the garbage out after I'd had this a tremendous experience of God in previous years, and I had no plan left. God still has a way of reminding us that he's in charge. And so the angel commands him to go to Mount Horeb. God always has a plan. Don't ever doubt it. No matter how dark your circumstances are, God always has a plan. And so the angel commands him to go to Mount Horeb. Now that's Interesting, because Mount Horeb is actually another name for Mount Sinai. And it was 250 more miles from Beersheba. But here's something really significant. The journey took 40 days. That immediately links Elijah with the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses spent on the very same mountain in Exodus 24. And the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness after their failure to enter the promised land. So 40 is the number of failure. But it's also the number of God's presence because the wilderness is the place where God meets us. So often he met Abraham there, he met David there, he met Elijah there. We'll find out he met uh, Jesus there. Amidst Elijah's failure, God is about to show up. And God often shows up in the moment of our failure because failure is so often the gateway to success. The wilderness 
in the original Exodus and also in what I call the replay or rerun of the Exodus, which is portrayed in the book of Revelation, which is what the book of Revelation is all about. That's another, definitely another message. The wilderness is the place of God's protection between the place of spiritual bondage, that's your Egypt, and the place of ultimate deliverance, which is the new Jerusalem. In between, we live in the wilderness. And it's the place of God's protection. It's also the place where it's, we're exposed to um, temptation, to compromise, to idolatry, and so on. The place of attack, but the place where God meets us and protects us. Now, the story here is about to show us that the wilderness, more than Mount Carmel, turns out to be the place of God's presence for Elijah. That's the significance of what's about to happen. Even as it was for Moses. Never, and never forget the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness. And in those 40 days, the number 40 was turned from a symbol of human failure to the place of the Son of God's victory over the powers of hell. And there in a cave on Mount Sinai, the word of the Lord comes once again to Elijah that he hadn't heard for a while. But the word of the Lord in verse 9 of 1 Kings chapter 19, it comes as a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, how many people know that God knew the answer? But sometimes he poses the question to bring forth a response. If you hear God questioning you, then he's expecting a response. He's drawing something out of your heart. What are you doing here, Elijah? And because when he draws the response out of our heart, like if you're counseling somebody, sometimes you, you know the answer to their problem, but you want to draw them something out of their heart by posing them questions so that they actually express themselves, articulate themselves what is going on in their life. And they come to a place of realization. And that's what God was doing with Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah was in the wrong place. He wasn't supposed to be there. But in the merciful providence of God, Elijah turns out to be in the place God will meet him. And I can't figure out God. Uh, uh, you know, I can't figure out J.P. Trolio, let alone God. <laughs> but uh, uh, God bless you. <laughs> you may be more successful than me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think... Elijah was in the wrong place, but God is going to meet him. You know, God has a way of meeting us even when things go wrong. God always turns up and he always has a plan. I can't figure that out, but I thank God for his sovereignty. Even if you miss God, even if you fail, God will still find a place to meet you because he's more committed than you are to fulfilling his plan for your life. God is more invested in your life than you are. And so he will mercifully meet you even when you've screwed up. Now, Elijah's in this conversation with God. If he'd been honest, 
God says, what are you doing here? If he'd been honest, he would have confessed the truth. Well, I'm here, Lord, because I lost sight of you. I'm here, Lord, because I fell into fear. Uh, I'm here because I didn't stand up to Jezebel in the confidence that the same God that met me on top of Mount Carmel would meet me at the bottom of Mount Carmel. But he didn't answer that way at all. He just answers with a self-justifying complaint. Look at all I've for you, God. Now you've left me alone and my enemies are trying to kill me. As if God needed that information. There's nothing worse than when men fall into a pout. (laughs) And Elijah was in a pout, a pity party. Through his own anger at God and self-pity, Elijah had lost track of the spiritual reality that had controlled his whole life. And that's what self-pity can do to you. That's what getting angry at God can do to you. That's what loss of perspective can do to you. The spiritual, the reality that's controlled your whole life and all the encounters, experiences you've had with God somehow go out the window. I mean, look at Elijah. Uh, He'd forgotten already what God had done for him on Mount Carmel. He'd forgotten not only that, but he'd forgotten what God had done when he was out there in the desert being fed by the raven that brought him food in the desert. I have to tell you the story of an apostolic friend of mine in India who's now with the Lord. And at a moment of utter desperation when he was being persecuted as eight children, just so I can relate to that, and no food left. And he's crying out to God, In the middle of his courtyard in Hyderabad, a raven appeared, came down in front of him and deposited a gold coin. And he never looked back. Now that's what God had done for Elijah. uh, But he'd forgotten it. He'd forgotten what God had done when he, remember, raised that widow's child from the dead. He was blaming God for a difficult situation that he could not explain. He was blaming God for a difficult situation that he could not explain. How many of you have been in a difficult situation that you can't explain and can't figure out where you're at in it or God's at in it? We've all been there. But what we don't do is blame God for it. We can lay it before God. We can say, God, I'm perplexed at this. We can even say, God, I'm mad at you. David did that all the time in the Psalms. God already knows you're mad at him. He doesn't need to have a revelation of it. You might as well be honest with him. So, uh, but he was just blaming God for a situation he couldn't explain rather than assuming that God who in his utter faithfulness and power and sovereignty, who had rescued Elijah and met him over and over again, rather than assuming that God actually had a plan, he was blaming God. Now, you may not see the plan. You may not see the provision. You may not know how you're going to get out of this. You may not know how God is going to meet you in it. But be assured that God has a plan. If God had a plan to save you from eternal hell, he has a plan to get you through all the little, you know, things that you go through in life. (laughs) All the drama. (laughs) I mean, I know, thank God, there's no drama in this church. (laughs) 
not a bit of it. You're all more than conquerors, aren't you? There you go. Well, they think they're all that in a bucket of chicken. Okay. <laughs> now, here's what had happened. Elijah had allowed Jezebel to turn an incredible victory into an utter defeat. He'd believed a lie. Oh, trouble always comes when you believe a lie. And the devil, as the author of lies, is his constant mandate to lie to you. He will just do it every day of the year. You have to learn how to recognize that voice and withstand it with the truth. So the truth will set you free. So Elijah had believed a lie. The question is, and the lie had come in when he heard Jezebel's threat, you know, you're dead meat. Uh, 450 prophets of Baal, that hadn't bothered him, but Jezebel, that finished him off. So he believed a lie. What was the lie? That's the question. Because we have to be able to identify the lie that we believe that has got us into the mess that we're in. Now, none of you are in a mess because you're all that bucket of chicken by your own self-confession. But if you ever do get into a mess in the future, just remember what I, Uncle Dave has to say because it might come in handy. The lie at its foundation was the lie that God had failed him. That was the lie. So the question is, what, what false belief made Elijah susceptible to believing that something his whole walk with God should have taught him was not true? How could he have believed that God had failed him? That was the basic lie. But what was the power behind the lie? And I think it was this. Elijah was expecting victory to come through the manifestation of power on the mountain. And when that didn't happen, he was lost. And here it is. Elijah's identity worked in strength, but it didn't work in weakness. Elijah's identity worked in strength, but it didn't work in weakness. Elijah had not discovered what another man centuries later knew so well that God's power is manifest in only one place, our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Elijah was lost in self-centered navel-gazing. And when all you can see is your own disappointment, you will place your suffering at the center of your universe and you'll forget who your God is and what he's done for you. So, God takes Elijah out of the cave and he stands him in a place on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. 1 Kings 19, verse 11. I didn't have time to read the whole story. Please go back and read it sometime this week. God takes Elijah out of the cave and he stands him in a place in the mountain, on the mountain, in his presence. Verse 11. Now, here's the thing. Exodus 33 and 22 tells us that God met Moses on Mount Sinai in the cleft of the rock, and now he meets Elijah. I can't prove it, but I believe it was the very same place. 
500 years earlier, he had met Moses. The coincidences are too many. Like Moses, God took Elijah to the mountain. He makes him stand in a place where his presence passes by, just like Moses. Just like Moses, there were three manifestations of the power of God, the earthquake, the wind, and the fire. Just like the earthquake and the lightning and the fire when Moses goes up the mountain. But God was in the business of making a point. After the power manifestations, the earthquake, the wind, and the fire, something very different happens. And Elijah instantly, he instantly knew it. And I'm sure the same cloud, the glory cloud, that's what I was talking about on Wednesday night, the same glory cloud appeared, the same glory of God passed by as happened with Moses in the same place on the same mountain 500 years earlier. And just like Moses, it says Elijah covered his face because no one can see God and live. And then God came in what is usually translated a low whisper. But the Hebrew phrase is dumamadaka, which means a thin silence. Hebrew is a very graphic language with a small vocabulary. A thin silence. It's a tactile language. And that's why I call this message the thin silence of God. And in that moment, God asks Elijah the same question as he had before. What are you doing here? Elijah still hasn't learned because he gives God back the same answer. Listen, if God asks you a question and you answer it, then he comes back and says the same thing all over again. Don't give the same wrong answer you did before. Or if for that matter, God in the person of your pastor or your elders or whoever, some trusted friend, God comes to you in the person of a trusted friend or spiritual authority and you give the same wrong answer you did last week. Don't do that. <laughs> Anger against God, disappointment that he's apparently failed you. When you feel you want to say, I'm disillusioned. Well, let me give you a revelation. You're only disillusioned because you believed in illusion in the first place. It's not on God. The problem is with you. Disappointment with God, disillusionment that God has apparently failed you will destroy your capacity to hear the voice of God and find the wisdom of God. If it did it with Elijah, it will certainly do it with you and me. So God doesn't dignify Elijah's complaints with an answer. And neither is God forced to delay putting his plan into operation by Elijah's disobedience. God is going to move ahead whether you or I move with him or not. The question is, are you going to move with God and in the blessing of God? And so God responds to Elijah's what I call self-centered inertia, passivity, whatever you want to call it, but God is not passive. And God is not ever in a state of inertia. He is always moving ahead with his plan. If you're not moving ahead in God this morning, you're falling behind. 
There's no sitting on the fence in the kingdom of God. So God responds to Elijah with a list of commands. Elijah is to go to Damascus and anoint Hazael king over Syria. Then he's to find a man called Jehu and anoint him king over Israel. And finally, he's to find a man called Elisha and anoint him prophet in his place. Now, this is the ultimate point of the thin silence. Victory will come, but it is going to come in an unanticipated way. It's not going to come through displays of supernatural power. It's not going to come through Elijah, the man of power. Elijah has missed his opportunity, but God is moving on. The authority Elijah has held is to be handed over to others. Hazael and Jehu, who were the first two men Elijah anoints, they will eventually destroy both Ahab and Jezebel. They'll get the job done. Elisha, who is the third man Elijah anoints, will carry on the whole prophetic ministry in a new format, incorporating the school of the prophets and 7,000 others in Israel who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. But see the faithfulness of God here. Elijah had complained that the people had forsaken the covenant. That's what he complained to God. But under Jehu, the covenant will be renewed. Elijah had complained they've killed the prophets. But by the hand of Hazael and Jehu, those who killed the prophets would themselves be killed. Elijah had complained that he was left alone. But under Elisha, the third man he anointed, a mighty school of the prophets would arise to replace him. God has a plan. Victory is going to come, but it's going to come in an unanticipated way. See, the New Testament teaches us that Elijah is a forerunner. He's a type of John the Baptist. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come, Jesus said. But Elisha, his name means God saves. He is a type of the man whose name means Yahweh saves, Yeshua. That's why Elisha is the one, not Elijah, who multiplies the loaves to feed the people. He's a forerunner of the one who's the bread of life. Elisha is the one who shows mercy to his enemies. He spares the soldiers led into the city. He heals the enemy general, Naaman. Elijah was a one-man band who had to be reminded that there were also 7,000 others who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. But Elijah was the one who released the anointing of God to others through his prophetic school, which is a type or forerunner of the body of Christ. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19 and 10. We're all prophets now. We're all prophetic people who can hear from God. So God has a plan. It's just not going to come in the way that Elijah thought that it would. True victory ultimately comes in the place of human weakness. True victory ultimately comes in the place of human weakness. I actually found that that very comforting because I'm frequently very weak. It wasn't at Mount Carmel when Elijah was at his strongest. It was at Mount Sinai where Elijah was at his weakest when the purposes of God were released on the earth. Mount Carmel, amazing though it was, turned out to be only a preliminary victory. See, Jesus understood this, even though his disciples didn't. 
Jesus performed miracles, which the Gospel of John says are signs that point to his true identity. The miracles, like the victory on Mount Carmel, are amazing. But if you don't find Christ through the miracles, the miracles amount to nothing. Most of the people who saw and were impressed by the miracles of Jesus never got the point and eventually walked away. Jesus understood that victory would not come through the power of the miraculous. He, after all, in Gethsemane, he said he could have called upon his father for the miraculous, to send legions of angels. But that's not what was going to release the purposes of God. The purposes of God would be accomplished through a man hanging in utter humiliation and defeat on a Roman cross. But hanging on the cross, Jesus Christ in that moment was controlling the course of all human history. Victory comes in our weakness, not in our strength. So Elijah is a hero to me, and I think he should be to all of us. He stood for righteousness. His life was characterized by extraordinary displays of faith and faithfulness to God. And in the end, God honored him by taking him up to heaven in a literal cloud of glory. But we do need to learn a lesson from where Elijah failed. God can come in ways that we expect and pray for, in miracles, in healings, in provision, in promotion, in things going right in life, in churches growing and everything being hunky-dory. And we should pray for all those, yes. But such things are not the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith is not the miraculous. It's not the happy-clappy when everything goes right. The foundation of our faith, brothers and sisters, is the cross. And so when the miracles don't happen for you, or when God appears to move somewhere else in some way, but all the things you hope for as a result don't come to pass, just like happened to us 30 years ago when the visitation of God came and it went and people didn't respond, what do we do then? We don't lose heart because we haven't believed the lie that without a constant manifestation of the supernatural, we've lost the presence of God. No, we learn to listen for the whisper. We learn to seek out the thin silence. And in that thin silence and out of it will come the full release of the purpose of God in your life. God calls you and I to walk in the way of the cross. But the good news is that the cross was followed by the resurrection. It's a constant theme of the Bible that God first gives a dream, then he destroys it, then he restores it. God has a problem. He thinks he's God. He did it with Abraham. He did it with Jacob. He did it with Moses. He did it with David. He did it with Elijah. He did it with Paul. What do we do when our dream seems to die? In the words of my spiritual father, a man called Dwayne Harder, each of us needs to wrap our dreams and expectations in the burial cloth of Christ and place them 
in the tomb. God brings our visions to a place of death before he resurrects them so that he alone receives the glory. So my friends, when things don't turn out in life as you expect, which might happen once or twice to some of you, when you run out of hope, when you're walking down your driveway of despair carrying the garbage out like I was, remember the lesson of Elijah. You can feel sorry for yourself and give up, or you can flee to the place of God's presence and find him there in the thin silence. And when you do, you can know that your time of resurrection is on the way. God bless you.